This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And we're here today with Dr. Robert Trug, who is the Professor of Medical Ethics, Anesthesia, and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, the Program Director for Medical Ethics at Harvard Medical School, and Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, today, we're going to do something a little different than what we've been doing over the last six months. Uh, previously, we've had an international expert talking about some topic of importance to us all. And today, certainly, this is a topic of importance to us all. It's end-of-life care. But unlike our previous speakers, we all recognize that there's no evidence to guide us on the right way or the wrong way to be doing this. Uh, end-of-life care is um, something that is uh, deeply important to all of us, and it's anchored in deeply held religious, cultural, and indeed uh, medical and legal obligations that we each have in the country of practice that uh, we are practicing in. But today we do have an international expert in this area who's going to talk to us about these different concepts. And as before, we're going to be asking Dr. Trug how he practices in his environment. So Bob, welcome, and um, we look forward to the discussion today. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think that uh, one of the things that's going to be most interesting to me is to explore how people do think about these very sensitive issues around the world. And uh, I'm fairly comfortable with what we do in our own country. Uh, but, uh, you know, frankly, I don't know that much about how people manage these around the world. And so I think that this is going to be exploratory for all of us. So I thought I would start by talking about a case that happened at a major American pediatric ICU a few years ago. <clears throat> so it's an actual case. And it involves a nine-year-old boy who had facial surgery for mandibular hypoplasia. The anesthesiologist could not ventilate him after the induction of anesthesia because of his small jaw, and he went on to have a cardiac arrest in the operating room. He was successfully resuscitated, but he had very severe brain damage. He went to the pediatric ICU, and after a month, he remained dependent on mechanical ventilation. He was unresponsive, but he did not meet any criteria for brain death. So there were, of course, many, many meetings with the physicians, the consultants, and the family. The neurology consultants wrote in the chart that his most likely outcome would be a permanent vegetative state. And so I thought at this point we'd talk about what clinicians might do at this point in the child's course. Thank you, Bob. Um, I wonder now if I could turn and ask the world as we've been doing in these forum. Uh, these are deeply held uh, uh, positions and views, and I want everyone to feel comfortable answering this. And so if you don't feel comfortable answering for your particular ICU, please feel free to hit the anonymous button. And if you could, uh, leave some description to the extent that you feel comfortable as to uh, what city or what country uh, you reside in. And I wonder if I could ask, in your environment, not as you would necessarily practice, but in your environment, what is the uh, predominant mode of, of, of end-of-life care that would be provided? Would it be that the uh, 
the first category that the ventilator is uh, withdrawn? Or would it be the second category that you continue ventilation but do, do not increase the ventilator settings? Or is it the third category, none of the above, all necessary ventilatory support must be continued? Um, or the fourth, any of the above, depending on the uh, advice of the physicians and the desires of the parents. Um, or last, is it, is it is something else, as Dr. Trug has listed here? And again, um, please answer uh, to the degree that you feel comfortable, and if necessary, please use the anonymous button. And if you could, in, even when answering anonymously to the extent that you feel comfortable, uh, tell us what country um, and city um, your intensive care unit um, is located. So Jeff, as you know, very commonly in our intensive care unit, uh, the response to this, if this was something that the family was in agreement with, is that we would stop the ventilator. And actually, you and I have just uh, completed some research where we looked at 192 cases of children who died in the ICU at five centers around our country. And 71% of, of the time, the children died after the withholding or withdrawal of life support. So this is, in fact, very common in, in, in our country, in our culture. And in fact, in adult ICUs, even more common. As many as 90% of deaths uh, follow withholding or withdrawal of life support. In the United States. In the United States, that's right. Now, you know, if, if we look at this from sort of a philosophical or an ethical context, I think for many, their practice is determined by how they think about the question, should physicians ever hasten death? That is, do anything that might speed up the death of a patient. And for conversation purposes, let me suggest that there's at least three different ways that you could look at this question. One would be that to hasten death is always wrong, that life support should never be withdrawn. And in my limited experience, uh, with how practice varies around the world. I think that this is true, for example, throughout some of Southern Europe, throughout the Middle East, for example. And at least from talking with colleagues that I have in those parts of the world, while they never withdraw life support, I understand that it's often quite common for them to make a decision not to add a new therapies, you know, for example, not to go to high frequency or go to ECMO, or perhaps not to escalate support. So while patients die uh, without having life support withdrawn, um, at least from what I've, what I've learned from conversation is that patients often don't have a prolonged death because of decisions to limit the escalation of life support. A second way to think about that question is that hastening death or speeding up death may be permissible, but only if it is not what we intend. That our intention must always be to relieve suffering, not to cause death. Uh, but that we recognize that some of the things we might do may actually hasten death. And this relates to a philosophical principle called the doctrine of double effect, which I'm going to come back to and describe in a little bit more detail in a moment. And then the third possibility is that we may think that hastening death is permissible, and in fact it may be intended. And we know that there's at least two countries in the world where this is the case, the Netherlands and Belgium. And there is some data that, in fact, this is done in other parts of the world, even though it's not explicitly endorsed by the laws of the country. Uh, but even here, we would say that this decision to hasten death must be consistent with the patient's best interests. This can't be a way for people to commit suicide, for example. This 
only pertains to patients who have a terminal illness, for example. And it must be voluntary. It must be the choice of the patient for themselves. And this is, of course, a, a problem with children because particularly young children are not able to make choices like this. And I know, for example, that in Holland, this is very much an act of debate as to whether voluntary euthanasia would ever be permissible in the pediatric context. Um, so, Bob, um, thank you for that overview. And as a reminder to our, our audience, you are the first author on the current Society of Critical Care Medicine and American College of Critical Care Medicine uh, guidelines on end-of-life care. And that's a very clear overview. You alluded to um, your personal practice. And I wonder if I could press you just a bit. Um, in your personal practice, where do you fall? Into which of these categories do you fall? Yeah, so, um, you know, in all situations, we're going to be working very closely with a family around uh, their preferences, their hopes, um, and how they would like to proceed. And uh, much of our decision making would be, would be guided by, by their thinking about this. But as I think you know, the data from our study showed, and certainly my practice, is that very often here the decision will be made to stop the ventilator and thereby allow the child to die. Bob, uh, obviously uh, the next logical question is, if you're practicing in an environment where um, the decision to withdraw mechanical ventilatory support is legal and is um, indeed seen as the appropriate thing to do, the logical question becomes, how do you do it? Um, what are the different ways we should be thinking about this? Right, and uh, so a couple of different approaches that have been in the literature. Um, one is to go ahead and remove the endotracheal tube from the child. Another is to leave the tube in place, but to just turn down the degree of support. So, put, for example, putting the ventilator to CPAP and turning, it, uh, turning the oxygen concentration to room air. In the adult community, that term is uh, often terminal wean? Terminal wean, right. So this goes, the, removing the endotracheal tube is often called terminal extubation. Turning down the ventilator settings is often called a terminal wean. And uh, it turns out that historically, the approach has differed quite a bit by specialty. So pediatricians were more inclined to remove the endotracheal tube, internists and surgeons to turn down the ventilator settings. Why might that be the case, by the way? Well, you know, there's some pros and cons to each, and I think uh, uh, that maybe might help us to understand. So if we remove the endotracheal tube, one of the main advantages is that it allows the parents to have a more natural interaction with the child as their child is dying and to be able to hold their child without having a piece of plastic uh, there. Um, one of the downsides for this, though, is that the child may have some obstructive respirations with some strider or gasping, and that can be uncomfortable for the family and sometimes difficult to manage. So the advantage of leaving the endotracheal tube in place is that it avoids any problems with upper airway obstruction. It maintains the patency of the airway, and it is less abrupt so that if the patient shows any signs of being uncomfortable or having shortness of breath, it gives us an opportunity to go ahead and start to administer some medications. So, Bob, once again, um, you're the first author of the current guidelines, uh, but can I ask you in your own practice, uh, do you believe um, or do you practice that uh, one way or the other, do you prefer one mode or, over the other, and if so, um, how do we think about that? Or if you do both, how do you think about when you're going to do a terminal extubation and when do you do a terminal wean? 
Yeah, it's a, you know, I think that uh, when I started off, uh, they were pretty much all terminal extubations because that's what I had seen. But I've come to think that it is better if we're versatile with a variety of different approaches. And in fact, oftentimes combining these two, I think, uh, can, can work very well. To leave the endotracheal tube in place initially, to turn down the ventilator settings, put the child on CPAP, turn the oxygen down to room air, maybe begin to titrate in a little bit of sedation, make sure that the child is going to be comfortable. And then once you're assured of that, to go ahead and take out the endotracheal tube and then allow the parents to be with their child in this more natural state. Um, you know, I think that for us to be flexible, to be able to adapt to the situation and to the needs of indiv individual families is, is often the best way to go. I wonder if I could turn now again to our colleagues around the world and once again to the extent that you feel comfortable um, if you could tell us what city and country you're practicing in, um, and if you feel less comfortable doing that directly, please feel free to use the anonymous button. But again, would appreciate if you could give us some sense to the degree that you feel comfortable as to where your practice is located. And once again, the, the question is now that we've heard from Dr. Trug, uh, what describes the practice in your environment? Is it that typically the um, endotracheal tube is removed, the so-called terminal extubation, or is it more common uh, that the endotracheal tube remains in place, uh, the so-called uh, terminal wean, um, or is it a mixture uh, of, of the two depending on the circumstances as Dr. Trug described? All right, so we've reached the point now where we've made a decision to withdraw the ventilator using one of these approaches. And so that the next question that we're going to be looking at then is after withdrawing the ventilator, what's going to be our approach to sedation? And this is where it really, I think, starts to become more controversial. Let me list some of the options that might be out there. One would be that no medications should be given because many of these depress respirations and could hasten or speed up the patient's death. Another is that meds should be titrated to the patient's comfort, enough to provide comfort, but not more. Next is that perhaps we might give a large bolus of a drug like potassium chloride through something like a central venous line, which assures the patient a quick and a painless death, or somewhat similar, perhaps a large dose of morphine. Let's say for discussion, you know, two grams, a very large dose could be given also to assure a quick and a painless death. Or how about a neuromuscular blocking agent? Could be added to any of the above, again, to assure that the process is quick and certain, or perhaps something else. So uh, I put all of these uh, down because all of these, uh, I know, have happened. I know of cases where, where each of these approaches has been taken, and I think it's worth talking about their relative pros and cons. So Bob, um Again, as the first author of the current guidelines on end-of-life care from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, how did you weigh these considerations in the guidelines, and what do the guidelines instruct us to do in this regard? Good, yeah, Jeff. So what our guidelines recommend largely is the second option that I listed here, that medication should be titrated to the patient's comfort, enough for comfort but not more. And I want to take uh, just a couple minutes here, and I want to describe the ethical basis for that. It uh, comes from what is known as the doctrine of double effect. And this was a, a philosophical construct, if you will, that was originally developed in the Catholic Church several hundred years ago. 
but it's no longer considered just a religious perspective. It's, it's really an, a, an ethical idea that has been adopted into secular thinking as well. And let me uh, explain to everyone, if they're not familiar with it, how it works. So the doctrine of double effect pertains to situations where there's an act which has both a good effect and a bad effect, hence double effect. And what we're talking about here, let's say, is the act of giving morphine, where the good effect is that we are relieving the patient's pain and suffering, but the bad effect is that this drug is a respiratory depressant, and so it might speed up or hasten the patient's death. Now, for this to be acceptable under double effect, it has to meet five requirements. The first is that the act itself has to be morally good or neutral. So giving morphine isn't necessarily intrinsically good or bad. Whether it's good or bad is going to depend on the circumstances. The second requirement is that the good effect is the one that we are intending. We are intending in giving this to relieve the patient's pain. The third requirement is that the bad effect cannot be intended but must merely be foreseen. We know that morphine is a respiratory depressant. We know that it might hasten the patient's death, but it is not what we are intending. It is merely foreseen. Fourth is that the bad effect cannot be the means to achieving the good effect. So this is the problem with potassium chloride because you know, we might say that potassium chloride by causing rapid cardiac arrest is a, in a sense kind of a pain reliever. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a bad way for anyone to die, but the reason why it's not acceptable under this double effect construct is because the only way that potassium chloride can result in pain relief is through the bad effect of speeding death. You can't get the pain relief unless you cause the bad effect. Whereas with morphine, you can have pain relief without necessarily causing death. And then the fifth requirement is what's called a proportionality requirement that is on balance the good that we're trying to achieve must outweigh the bad that we're allowing to have happen. And the example I typically use for this is imagine we had somebody in the intensive care unit after, you know, let's say a bad motorcycle accident. And they have a lot of broken bones and they're in a lot of pain, but we think that they're going to recover and do fine. Now certainly in that situation it would not be okay for us to titrate in more and more morphine until the patient has a respiratory arrest and, and dies. In that situation, we would have to do something else. You know, if their pain was bad enough, maybe we'd put them on a ventilator in order to be able to control their pain. But in the situation of somebody who is terminally ill, then that balance shifts. And then we're saying it's more important that we make sure they're comfortable than that we prevent hastening or speeding up their death. So that's basically the way that the double effect works. And, um, in the United States, this has been very much endorsed into our legal system. So, for example, there was a famous case in our Supreme Court a few years ago where our Chief Justice, the, the highest justice in the land, wrote, it is widely recognized that the provision of pain medication is ethically and professionally acceptable, even when the treatment may hasten the patient's death. If the medication is intended to alleviate pain and severe discomfort, not to cause death. Now he didn't use the words double effect in this because double effect is a term of philosophy, not a term of law. But if you were to take that diagram I just showed and summarize it in one sentence, you couldn't do a better job than he did here. So, you know, in the United States, uh, the practice according to double effect maps perfectly with our law. 
And so this is, you know, very much defines the way that we practice here. I wouldn't want to uh, stop, though, without pointing out that there are people who feel that there are problems with double effects. And I just want to mention quickly a couple of those. So for example, uh, some people have pointed out that we're usually morally responsible for all of our actions, not just those we intend, but for those that we should reasonably foresee. And you know, there's, there's lots of examples of that. If somebody goes out driving drunk, for example, they surely don't intend to kill anyone, but if they do, they're morally responsible for that. And so the argument would be, why should it be any different in this context? Why should we be given sort of a, a ethical pass just because we're not intending what we definitely foresee? The other is that uh, double effect requires us to be intending only to cause comfort, but not to hasten death. And as many people have pointed out, our intentions are usually more complex than that. I like, for example, this quote from Anton Chekhov, the great uh, Russian physician writer. Uh, he wrote, whenever there is someone in a family who has long been ill and hopelessly ill, there come painful moments when all timidly, secretly, and at the bottom of their hearts long for his death. And I think that this isn't an, an uncommon thing in intensive care units today, any, any less than it might have been common back in, in Russia when Chekhov was, was practicing and writing. And I think, you know, our intentions are often not as straightforward and pure as double effect may seem to require. Uh, Bob, thank you, because uh, uh, that's a frequently uh, described concept and it's often hard to follow, and that was very clear to me. Um, I wonder if we could go back now and use that framework uh, on this list that we were just discussing. How do you think about it in each context now? Okay, good. Yeah, let's go back and, and, and talk about the various options that, that were mentioned. So the first was that no medication should be given that might depress respirations and hasten death. And, you know, indeed, I think that this is not uncommon. Um, but uh, at least in our culture, uh, we're beginning to recognize that as physicians, we have an obligation to proactively make sure that patients are comfortable during the dying process. That our only goal is, is not just to prolong life as long as possible. And indeed, there are now some states like California and Oregon where physicians might lose their license or perhaps even go to jail if they do not provide adequate sedation and analgesia to patients who are dying. Uh, as I mentioned, um, the notion that meds should be titrated to the patient's comfort, that is giving enough for comfort but not more, is really the dominant view. And uh, I'd like to emphasize that the key word there is titration. The idea is that you're watching the patient, you're seeing are they comfortable, if they are not, then going ahead and giving, giving more. That is the approach that I think is most compatible with double effect. We mentioned the potassium chloride and the fact that that's not acceptable because the only way that potassium chloride causes pain relief is through the bad effect of hastening death. Um, how about the large dose of morphine, the two grams? You know, I think uh, when I discuss this case, many people say that that would be what they might prefer for themselves or a family member. It is, it is, it is a, a painless death. And yet, that has problems with double effect too because, you know, when you're giving such a large dose of morphine, it's very difficult to say that your intention was only to relieve pain, not to cause death, since that would otherwise be a lethal dose. And then finally, you know, neuromuscular blocking agents. 
when physicians perform euthanasia in Holland, for example, these agents are often a part of what they use. But under double effect, they're not permissible because it requires that our intentions be to relieve pain. And as we know, these drugs don't do that. They don't have that pharmacological effect. So we can't use them and say that we're intending them to do something that they cannot do. So that's sort of how I would you know, lay out these various uh, positions around the different approaches we might take and, and, and how they fit with that doctrine of double effect. Bob, thank you for that overview. I wonder if I could ask you now this. Um, what if uh, the parents say to you, I don't want you to give any medication to my dying child? And your response is, but I, I, from everything I can assess about your child, your child's uh, in pain or is, is going to experience pain or discomfort, and I don't recommend that. And the parent turns back to you and says, I understand that my child may experience suffering, but it's important for me for various reasons that you not administer any uh, analgesia or sedation, no medications. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, I think that's one of the, the toughest situations we deal with. And, um, you know, I think it's very important to explore what the parental reasons are for that. I mean, sometimes it may be even that they're concerned about addiction or things like that, which obviously are irrelevant. Some might misunderstand their religious, uh, the religious tenets that uh, they follow because, for example, in Catholic teaching, um, it is okay to give medications to a child even when they might hasten death, as long as we're giving it with the intention of making the child comfortable. But for others, there, you know, there's a, there's a notion that there is a redemptive element to suffering and things like this that I think calling in uh, our spiritual advisors, uh, people that might help to advise the family could be helpful. Some people will feel strongly that at some point we cannot simply watch a child suffer uh, when we could be treating that and may feel that we actually need to disqualify the parents as the decision makers around this particular decision and go ahead and treat the child to make them comfortable. So I don't think that there's any set answer to that. I think it's always going to be difficult, but those would be some of the things that I would be thinking about. Bob, I wonder if we could move on now to um, the actual practice of end-of-life care. And um, I know uh, around the world, uh, most of us uh, have learned uh, to administer benzodiazepines and narcotics. Um, it is, really, is it only benzodiazepines and narcotics? Uh, what about other medications? Um, is that allowed? Is it appropriate? How do you think about this? You know, uh, it's a great question. And uh, so, you know, some of the things that we might think about using, as you say, opioids, Morphine and fentanyl we're very comfortable with. Benzodiazepines, at least in the environment where we practice, uh, midazolam, lorazepam, but we could also think about ketamine, pentobarbital, propofol, dexmedetomidine. Um, I've often seen that clinicians uh, have a very narrow view about this, and they're really comfortable with only, say, a couple of meds, like morphine or midazolam. And I'd like to encourage people to think a little bit more broadly. When I think about that list of medications that I just mentioned, I would say that all of the above may be appropriate depending on the circumstance. And I want to just return here for a moment to this doctrine of double effect that we've been talking about. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that at least under this uh, construct, um, any drug is permissible if it's being used to make the patient comfortable, and any dose is acceptable as long as it's what the patient needs. There's no predetermined dose that is too high. 
It just has to be a dose that the patient needs. In other words, we can give these things as long as it is necessary to make the patient comfortable. Just don't give more than is necessary. And here I'd like to point out that uh, in the last few years, um, I've seen a greater role for propofol in end-of-life care. And I don't have a lot of uh, evidence to support this, but you know, my experience has been, Jeff, that oftentimes when we have a patient who's been on very large doses of morphine, very large doses of midazolam, let's say, uh, you know, we might think that it's quite likely that all of their opioid and benzodiazepine receptors are probably saturated, and it's very difficult to predict how they're going to respond to larger doses of drugs in that same class. You know, even if you give them 10 times as much, it's not clear how, how they're going to respond. And so, in the context of withdrawing life support, where we want to make sure that the patient is comfortable, where we need to react quickly with drugs that act quickly, I've often found that going to a drug that acts in a different way, like propofol, gives us a lot of control in that situation that we don't have if we stick to our drugs that we're most comfortable with, you know, that is the opioids and the benzodiazepines. And so personally, I have found propofol to be a very useful agent under these circumstances. I wonder if I could ask you this. Uh, there's a tension between uh, titration and presumptive dosing, meaning um, you've been very clear that the guidelines, and indeed it sounds like your own personal practice, is that you titrate uh, sedatives or analgesics um, or other um, pain-relieving medications to uh, the patient's uh, symptoms. Uh, but of course, everything we know from uh, pain treatment says that you want to uh, avoid that pain ladder. You don't want the pain to be escalating and then trying to uh, address the issue after the pain has emerged is going to require higher doses. And so the concept of presumptive dosing of, of analgesia to uh, provide best pain treatment. But of course, in end-of-life care, there's a tension here. Uh, on, on the one hand, we don't want to be entirely reactive for the reasons that you said. The patient may be uh, experiencing escalating symptoms of suffering at the end of their life you know, with their family watching this, and it's requiring greater and greater doses to treat that. On the other hand, presumptive dosing, uh, it, it makes people concerned, am I going to hasten the death, and what dose do I choose? Right. How do you think about that in your personal practice? Yeah, so I think uh, this, I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought this up because I think it is an important tension. The concept of titration means you wait until you see some signs of discomfort and then you give more. But particularly when we're talking about removing the endotracheal tube, we know that this patient is going to go from being relatively comfortable on the ventilator to possibly being very short of breath within moments. And, you know, if we don't treat that presumptively, It'd be a little bit like if you take somebody to the operating room for an appendectomy and you say, you know, okay, we're about to make the skin incision. As soon as you start to feel some pain, you let me know and I'll start to give you some anesthetic. Um, that's what it's like when, when, when an endotracheal tube is removed. And so I think that we do need to give medication ahead of that presumptively, even though it doesn't, strictly speaking, fit with this concept of titration. And so what we wrote about in the guidelines was that if you're going to be extubating somebody at the end of life, to give them at least one hour's worth of what they've received prior to that before removing the endotracheal tube as a way to get on top of any signs of distress that they might have um, before it occurs. 
And if we could go back to something that I, if I think I heard you correctly earlier, it seems as if your practices evolve such that uh, you do do um, a uh, wean with the endotracheal tube in place down to, as you said, CPAP in order to assess the onset of respiratory distress so that you can then address that with sedatives or analgesics or something other before you move to extubation. Is that the reason that you've adopted that practice of weaning with the endotracheal tube in place down to CPAP? Right, um, and I, I think that, that that allows us to have a, a, a smoother process whereby things are happening less abruptly, less likelihood that the patient's going to suddenly experience symptoms of shortness of breath. I wonder now if I could turn to our colleagues around the world and ask, um, what is your practice in your uh, location? Um, is it that uh, benzodiazepines and opiates are the principal treatment regimen? Um, or is it that uh, beyond opiates and benzodiazepines, indeed all of the above, um, could be uh, me medications uh, that would be part of the treatment plan for end-of-life care in your environment? All right, Jeff. Well, you know, I think uh, a lot of what we've, we've talked about, I'm sure there's a, a many, many views around the world about how these should be done. But one that remains most controversial for, for us in, in, in our environment is the management of the pharmacologically paralyzed child. So, for example, consider a child who is uh, on a vecuronium drip, let's say, on high-frequency ventilation, at a time a decision is made to withdraw the ventilator. This is not uncommon for us. And the question then is how do you manage the infusion of vecuronium in this context? And at least three possibilities uh, would be that someone would say, well, I'll just stop the drip, but I'm not going to delay the withdrawal of life support just because the child still is pharmacologically paralyzed. Or some would say, I stop the drip, and then I wait until I see some movement tells me that it's starting to wear off. Or some might say, you know, I stopped the drip, but I'm not going to be comfortable withdrawing the ventilator until I know that that agent is completely gone, even to the point of administering reversal agents like neostigmine and atropine, for example. And I know that uh, around the country practices vary quite a bit here. I do want to emphasize that, you know, this is the context of a child who is already paralyzed because they've needed that in order to tolerate the treatments that were given. I, I do want to come back and say, as we, as we said before, that for somebody who is, has not been receiving these drugs, I believe in our environment, paralytic agents should never be given as part of end-of-life care. But this is the question of what do you do if they're already paralyzed and now you're faced with the moment of withdrawing the ventilator? Uh, well, Bob, you've made that distinction very clear, that the context that we're talking about now is a child whose prior treatment regimen has for various reasons um, uh, included neuromuscular blockade. And now the decision has been made to withdraw mechanical ventilatory support. And how do we proceed in that context, knowing that the child has neuromuscular blockade um, uh, in their system? And so my question is, what do the guidelines instruct us to do? Um, and, and also, Bob, could you share with us, in your practice, what do you do? Sure. So. Um, 
We gave this a lot of thought in writing the guidelines, and, and uh, these do remain quite controversial, as I said. Uh, let, me, let me give the guidelines here. Uh, first, again, paralytic agents should never be introduced at the time of withdrawal of life support to someone who has not been receiving them. We are pretty clear about that. But when patients have been receiving paralytic agents for therapeutic reasons, neuromuscular function should ideally be restored before withdrawal of life support. And so that is what I try to do. Now, why? Because it gives me the most reassurance that I have made the child comfortable. The only way that I can really be sure they are comfortable is by seeing whether they're comfortable in a situation where they're able to show me behaviorally, where they're able to move. You know, under anesthesia, we can often use vital signs as a sign of patient's comfort. We can watch to see if they become hypertensive or, or, or tachycardic, but those are going to be unreliable in the context of a dying patient. The most reliable sign is to be able to observe them behaviorally. In order to do that, the drug needs to be gone. So that's the ideal. But unfortunately, sometimes um, if we wait for the neuromuscular blocking agent to wear off, in certain situations, particularly in patients who have hepatic or renal dysfunction, it might be hours, it might even be days. And during that time, we're going to be continuing to treat the patient with uh, you know, therapies that the family has already decided um, they don't want. They're, they're, you know, they're, we're continuing to impose pain and suffering on this child for no purpose. And so there's where I think that it, a compromise is often called for. And so in the guidelines we wrote, when restoring neurologic function would impose an unacceptable delay on the withdrawal of life support, withdrawal may proceed with particular attention given to ensuring the comfort of the patient through the dying process, recognizing that signs of discomfort will be difficult to detect. And I think that those actually do reflect my practice. I try to restore uh, neuromuscular function when I can, but when that's going to impose an unacceptable delay, we do go ahead and withdraw, even though the child remains paralyzed, being particularly careful to make sure that we've provided enough analgesia and sedation. I wonder if I could ask our colleagues one last question. Uh, could you describe your location to the extent that you feel comfortable, uh, what country and what city uh, your practice environment is located in? And again, you're not answering for yourself and your own practice, but rather in your environment is the general practice that you do or do not follow the SCCM guideline position that uh, Dr. Trug has just outlined on neuromuscular blocking agents at the end of life. Secondly, if you follow some other practice, uh, could you describe for us what that might be? And again, um, if you feel more comfortable using the anonymous button, um, please do so, and we look forward to your comments. Dr. Trug, uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I know you um, discuss these issues across the, the world, and you know better than anyone that um, these are you know, very personal and deeply held beliefs. And um, we also appreciate the work that you've done for our community, both the pediatric community and the adult critical care community, um, as the author, uh, not just most recently, but the first author uh, in 2003, and then more recently in 2008, on the um, Society of Critical Care Medicine guidelines for care at the end of life. It's given all of us, I think, um, a, a pathway to at least look at and, and, um, and, and try to follow. So uh, we thank you for all your efforts. Thanks. You know, this was uh, a, a first time opportunity for me to really discuss these issues with an international, truly international audience. And uh, 
I'm looking forward to seeing what the comments are. Good. Thank you, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next month for World Shared Practices Forum. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.